Welcome to the APOE4.info podcast, where we discuss science and health from our perspective as carriers of a gene associated with higher risk of Alzheimer's and heart disease. Here is your host, Julie Gregory. Hi, friends. I'm very excited to have Dr. Dayan Goodnow, the founder and CEO of Prodrome Sciences, join us today. Dr. Goodnow invented a technology platform in 1999 that has been used to analyze thousands of human samples from around the world. Through collaborations with international researchers and doctors, Dr. Goodnow has become an expert on the biochemical basis of neurological diseases, including Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, autism, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia. His expertise spans multiple disciplines. He is an inventor of multiple patents, author of numerous scientific publications, and an international speaker. Dr. Goodnow is passionate about demystifying complex science so that everyone can have an opportunity to advance their health and optimize their longevity. Dr. Goodnow's technology and discoveries have allowed him to develop blood tests and dietary supplements designed for personalized health optimization, which he believes is the key to disease prevention and maximize longevity. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Julie. I've enjoyed working with your group over the last year or so. and um, Yeah, it's been a couple years, actually. It's been, yeah, it's been a while. And it's been um, a while. You've you got quite the group of eclectic... Um, uh, Characters. Mem- members. <laughs> there you go. There it is. That's the word I was looking for, members. And um, they're definitely, some of them are extremely well-informed. Right. Yeah. I mean, we seem to bring in a lot of intellectual people. When I first started this nonprofit about seven years ago, it's like there was APOE4 equals Alzheimer's, and there was a black box in the middle. And we knew there were mechanisms, but they weren't readily um, available to lay people, and even Alzheimer's researchers really hadn't uncovered all that much. And so since we've been working together, I think we've uncovered a lot, and we found strategies that we think uh, we can intervene to use to, you know, bring us towards health and away from the pathologies associated with APOE4. Yeah, and actually what you're seeing in the APOE4 community is not an aberration. I see it in other communities of individuals with rare genetic diseases where they have their own um, more specialized needs. Right. And there's, there's, there's always this, this balance. The scientific community has these rules that we follow for absolute scientific, double-blind, controlled right. trials. And we're seeing it right now with the COVID-19 response, right? With the malaria drug. And so people, the scientific community is ultra cautious and ultra conservative because they want to rely on strict observational facts. Unfortunately, that's not possible for all things in life. 
And what I found in individuals with rare diseases or with a particular genetic disease like ABV4, mm -hmm. which I don't call it a disease, right. but it's a, it's a, it's a predisposition, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, then the individuals within that community become far more expert at their disorder than the, the ruling class of science, if you will. Interesting. They follow, they yeah. follow different rules and it makes logical sense. And when we do scientific studies, we are limited to really group effects. And so the scientific community really hasn't been able to adapt to the messiness of complete human variability because humans are very variable and we have, so we have limited things that we can test. And so what happens with clinical trials is in order, because we can't test everything in everybody at all times, mm -hmm. the scientists have to select what they want to actually measure and then their inclusion and exclusion criteria ends up creating this special subgroup that they study in order that they can get this statistically meaningful outcome. Right. And in this scientific community, that's what we want to show. So yes, this drug actually shows a measurable change in this variable. Right. And, and it's a group effect. And, but in the real world, people just want something to work. They don't really, they're, when you're dealing with your own family and your own loved ones, you know if something's working or not. Um, and there are a lot of intelligent people out there that have been in other very high cognitive required industries. Mm -hmm. And when they apply that mindset, like you talk, like Bill mm -hmm. Gates applying his, um, his skill set to diseases and epidemiology, a smart person is a smart person is a smart person. As they choose to apply that intellect to a given problem, Mostly, it's just a matter of choice. You know, of the really intellectual people we have in this world, they can't do everything. So people choose what they're going to spend their time and energy on. And that doesn't mean we always have the smartest person in science doing mm. that particular project. That person might be an engineer right now, right? right? And then all of a sudden, someone in his family gets a disease. He never went through formal training. He might not have an MD behind his name or a PhD behind his name. But his level of intellect is still, you know, amazing. And then he starts researching and reading and he becomes as much of an expert in these areas as the people doing it for the last 10 years, because there's no difference. It's just a matter of, of reading, learning, applying and researching. And so I think we see that happening more and more. And it's a good thing. Yeah, it's also a good thing when researchers recognize the importance of partnering with patients to essentially find our own cure. After all, as you understand, we have skin in the game. We're trying to save our lives. In our community, N of one rules. We care a lot less about the group effect and much more about the immediate effect of a specific strategy on our own health or the health of our loved ones. So let's take a step back and talk about you. Tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to this type of research. So my background is in, well, chemistry 
and um, biochemistry and then further into neurochemistry and psychiatric disease in terms of the, the neurobiology and the neurochemistry of the brain. Um, so that's kind of where I come from. My background is actually um, agriculture as well. I come from a farming background. So I'm a, I'm a farm boy from Canada. Interesting. And um, but it's a matter of figuring things out. So so I'm a I'm an actual chemist and synthetic organic chemist as well. So for me, the best way to think about this is like there's there's really three main levels of organization in the world that we live in. There is the biology, which is like the interaction of ecosystems, and we and we think of the whole organism at that level and how organisms interact with each other. And we see that, right, with our pets and with animals and the world around us, and social interaction, which is really no different than biochemistry. And then you go from biology to chemistry. And so the, the, the smallest indivisible unit in biology is an organism, whether it's a virus or whether it's a bacteria, whether it's a human being. There, there's an interaction between organisms. And if you go one step below that is chemistry. And chemistry is in the world of atoms and molecules. And so you can't get the, the smallest denominator in chemistry is the atoms like carbon and oxygen and you know nitrogen, which form the molecules of our body. And we fundamentally live in a chemical world. We are chemical beings. And that chemistry can be strictly organic chemistry or it can be biochemistry. And then you can go one step further, which is inside that atom, which is the physics. Right? We talk about quantum mechanics and the very essence and nature of existence is in the, is in the world of physics, and which I'm also very interested in. So, but from, from a human being perspective, everything that we ultimately do is comes down to chemistry. Other than, you know, even some, you know, you can talk about physics with energy metabolism. Like, mm -hmm. obviously, we have, uh, there's, there's a electromagnetic fields and energies that also are interacting in our world and interact with our human body and, and, and so on. But so for me, chemistry is the one thing that you really have the most control and power over because that's the three-dimensional world that we live in. So that's kind of, for me, trying to understand how the world works um, really comes at it from a chemistry perspective. How are the molecules in our environment interacting with each other? And then when you take that from one logical progression to the next, and you start trying to understand how the human body works and how at a philosophical level, what really is the essence of a human being? And you deal with the neurology and your, your physical structure, but we're really fundamentally biochemical reactors, right? Like we eat carbohydrates and proteins mm -hmm. and fats, mm -hmm. and we convert that mm -hmm. into small molecules and those small molecules whether they're protein, you know, peptides or amino acids or lipids, they get circulated through our body and they get deposited in our membranes and keep us alive, right? Like we're not really like a plant where we take sunlight and mm -hmm. water and we grow. We physically have to seek out nutrients and, and build our body. And for a great period of our life, this system works incredibly well. Like we, you know, most people will say, you know, they don't really have a whole lot of complaints in their 20s to 40s, really. It's, right. Like, As it's, we age. <laughs> right. And well, it's, and that's, and that's the other thing. So when you talk about, so we, we don't really have to create 
something. We actually have a pretty work, good working prototype of what health is. And so that's kind of where, for me, the logical progression has been. So I've always been enticed by chemistry. As soon as I understood chemistry going through you know, high school, then I was bitten by that bug. And then right. one, thing, one thing just led to another. So that's a very long answer to your question. <laughs> Now, I enjoyed hearing the backstory of what led you to ultimately create your metabolomic testing. Yeah, so, so the interesting about metabolomics, okay, is that people think of, and now we get into the human body and human, like, right. you know, we have our genes, we have our proteins and our small molecules. And then, so all the organisms of the world have a genotype and that genotype drives structure, mm -hmm. but... And it, it's it, all of the the proteins in your body come from the genome. Okay, so so when we talk about um, I don't know how philosophical we want to go. We can we can talk about different things. But the the organizational structure of our being can be broken into three categories: is your your genome, your proteome, and the small molecules right. are the three main areas. And so people. And we, we don't always understand them, and quite often they're misinterpreted in the wrong way. And we, we start looking at predictions based upon genes, predictions based upon proteins um, and small molecules. But the, way the, the, way, the best way to think about these three main systems is your genome is like the city planning map. And it, it gives you the, the limits of what a city can achieve. So I can take a look at the, the city of Paris and I can take a look at the city of LA and I can make reasonable predictions as to which city would have problems with traffic. Okay, because I can say here's the infrastructure. Okay, here's a, there's a river here, there's a problem with this. So there's, 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 there's constraints of those two cities that I could look at and say, you know what? At, at five o'clock in rush hour, that's going to be a problem right there. Okay, and I can be pretty good at that prediction because I can just look at the map. So, uh, but I'm not actually measuring the cars on the road. I'm predicting it based upon that structure. Okay, and then you, the one step below is the proteins, and the proteins are are the actual roads now, not the map of the roads, but the actual roads. And I can say, oh, here is the six lane freeway, and if it's supposed to be a six-lane freeway, but you, like an APOE4 carrier, instead of a six-lane freeway for cholesterol, an APOE4 carrier only has a three-lane freeway for cholesterol. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the the actual physical road to carry cholesterol is is constrained. Now at rush hour, I can say, hey, an APOE4 carrier can't carry as much cholesterol, or a six a three-lane freeway can't carry as much cars. So I can say. From the proteome, I can say, you know what? There's going to be a problem on that bridge or on that freeway because that physical structure is less than optimal for that particular purpose. But I don't know. At 3 o'clock in the morning, no big difference. At 3 o'clock in the morning, it doesn't matter if you have a three-lane freeway or a six-lane freeway. It's more than sufficient to carry all the traffic. Small molecule chemistry, which metabolomics are, is we measure the cars on the road okay and it's unrelated to the genome like there's no there's no reference to the cars in the city planning map or in or in the proteome and so what happens 
in small molecule metabolomics is that by measuring the actual activity in this infrastructure, we can actually see what's really happening in a real, real perspective way. So at three o'clock in the morning, we see complete normal functionality. And so there's no, there's, there's no deficit. There's the predisposition mm -hmm. of the three lane freeway doesn't actually turn into reality at three o'clock in the morning. It only turns into a problem at, at five, eight, 5 p.m. at rush hour. So but metabolomics measures that. And what happens though is that cars, like your biochemistry, have a certain intelligence about them. So all of a sudden at five o'clock in the afternoon in rush hour, you don't have, the freeway doesn't back up indefinitely for 500 miles. No, no, no. People say, well, I'm not going to sit in traffic this long, so I'm going to take a side street. And so all of a sudden at five o'clock in the afternoon, in rush hour, in an APOE4 carrier, like a three-lane freeway, you now have a bunch of cars on roads and systems that they're not supposed to be on because the system tries to equilibrate, tries to say, okay, whoa, I got way too much traffic on this freeway. I got to move some of these cars somewhere else. And it's not really intelligent. Just people do that, right? They're going to say, well, I'm not going to wait in traffic. I'm going to go this way and that way. And so all of a sudden, all these side streets have a whole bunch of cars on them that you don't normally see. And when you measure that, you can actually say, whoa, if there's a whole bunch of activity where there's not supposed to be activity, why is that? And then you can work your way backwards and say, oh, you know what? The reason why I got a whole bunch of cars on the side street is because the freeway's blocked. And that's what metabolomics allows us to do. And then as you go further in that system, you can say, well, then I can optimize. I can say, you know what? Um, I can find out, I can make sure biochemically, back to your N of one concept, that if I have only a three-lane freeway, say for mitochondrial insufficiency, then I'm going to make damn sure I don't overload that system. And so if I can, if I can manage my biochemistry in a manner, which is what you are doing, right, with, with, with the APOE4 community, you're saying, you know what, we have a cholesterol situation, so let's make sure we handle all these other things so that we don't, we don't need that, that extra capacity. And, and then the APOE4 genotype becomes silent for your whole life. It's like you never, ever had it. And that's the same thing. So that's what metabolomics is about. And that's, that's kind of fascinating. So you think the reduced cholesterol transport is by far our biggest issue? It's, it is the biochemical mechanisms of the, of okay. the E4 protein, period. Right. Now, what, how it cascades into other systems. But that is fundamentally the, 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 the core biochemical difference right and that may translate in different things into into membrane structure into other other protein activities that that are dependent upon cholesterol levels um and remember we have limited windows like we, we measure blood supply we measure things um and those are inferences to what's going on behind the curtain so yes so that's but that's fun but that's no different than any other genetic predisposition that we have in in the human species and just a matter of identifying um, what your predispositions are or what your optimal space is and finding that optimal space and then keeping it there. Right. I find metabolomic testing to be very positive in that it gives us a snapshot of our current state of functioning. And I love the idea of being able to use it to manage our own health. 
Um, yeah. You know, yeah. So, it's yours. You can do it. You can change right. it. <laughs> so you found that there's a specific metabolite, plas plasmalogens, that correlate closely with cognition. So yeah. talk about how that relates to the APOE4 genotype. Exactly. Okay, so, so back onto this whole train of thought that I was rambling right. on there is that so the nice thing about genetics I mean with the genomic revolution is that you can actually sequence the human genome which we did mm -hmm. and that human genome contains all of the bases of mm -hmm. the genome and those bases translate into proteins so it gives us an ability like when I measure pick proteomics of your APOE4 genotype for instance I map that to the genome because I have this this template metabolomics doesn't have that luxury because metabolites are not genome dependent, right? Your cat and your dog has the same plasmalogens, the same glucose, the same peptides, no, same amino acids as you and I do. But obviously we don't look like a cat and a dog, so there's something different. And so metabolomics has to have a technology platform equivalent to this genomics gene chip, gene sequencing technology. And so before I could get anything really done in the biochemistry field, I had to find a way to measure thousands and thousands of small molecules simultaneously. And that was the core technology that I invented called non-targeted metabolomics, which allows us to take a blood sample or any biological sample and measure thousands of small molecules um, in different conditions. And so that was the, once that was invented and implemented into clinical trials around the world, we started looking at these situations of cognition, you know, different diseases of cancer, to understand what is the biochemical um, equilibrium in these, these different diseases. And one of the things that came up in our cognitive studies in Alzheimer's was these plasmalogens, that they were reproducibly lower in individuals with cognitive impairment. And the degree of decrease, like the, so the lower a person's plasmalogen level was the more severe their cognitive impairment was so the, the 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 severity of the deficiency correlated with their cognitive impairment and so that's a very powerful association and we need to figure out what was driving it what was the biochemical meaning behind it and that led to a whole host of other studies that need to be carried out and thought experiments and so the original discovery of the plasmalogen association was related to cognition. Mm -hmm. But then it became more clear that it was not just purely cognition that these plasmalogens were associated with. It was other neurological disorders, stroke, Parkinson's, ALS, schizophrenia, bipolar disease. So we see several of these neurological diseases with deficient plasmalogen levels. And, and so plasmalogen levels are correlated with overall mortality as well. Yeah, that was right. really shocking. We only had right. that data. So it's interesting, right? right. You, you find one observation, and then you have to be careful because sometimes you can think that that's the whole story, and you get your right. whole, you know, and science is bad for that. Like we've done it with, you know, amyloid. You're doing it now with alpha-synuclein, with Parkinson's. We get obsessed by one finding and sometimes we don't do a very good job of expanding like for instance ApoE4 um, genotype okay before this whole cognition thing okay it 
mostly was related to ca cardiovascular disease and right. heart heart disease issues. And you hardly ever hear about that now. Okay, like it's it's uh, it, it's become such a poster child of Alzheimer's disease right. that people of almost most people don't even realize that really a lot of the data originally was on the, the cardiovascular side. Right. Well, our community is very focused on cardiovascular yes, disease as obviously. well, and we understand we're at increased risk for both. So yeah. So that's kind of so the plasmalogen is an interesting story. So one thing leads to another, and we find that it's a critical component of neuronal membranes, and it basically has multiple functions, but there's really three critical functions, and these three functions can act together or they can act in isolation depending upon the person. So one is the actual membranes of your whole body. So your human body is made up of, and it's interesting, we, we forget about the most obvious things sometimes. The human body is made up of, of trillions of cells. Like you're really a composition of cells. And you have different cell types. And these cells are three-dimensional um, spheres or cubes, if you will. They're very much like an apartment building with walls around them. Okay, so you have... And you have the main cells. Otherwise, without the cellular structure, we'd just be soup, right, on the ground. Like we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we have structure. And all these mem, all these, what defines all the trillion cells of the human body is the phospholipid bilayer, which is the <clears throat> lipids that actually make up the physical structure of the cell walls, right? And that's how material gets in and out of your cells so that we stay alive. And then you have your organelles inside your cells, like your mitochondria and the peroxisomes, which are really important to be forced. And they themselves also have these membranes around it. And these membranes are where, like we, when we walk around, we walk around in air, right? This mm -hmm. is the matrix that we live in. But in the human body, most of these proteins and a lot of these activities are happening in your membranes. Like the membrane are the anchors, they hold things. And you can imagine how your body would move differently instead of walking through air that you had to start walking in water all the time like you would you would move differently you move slower different mm -hmm. different activities would be impaired and that's what happens in the biological membranes as that as the air or the membranes become stiff or more restrictive the proteins that have to work in that those membranes change their biological activity and right. that's and when, when you change that biological activity they compensate, and that's and that's what's happening with the ApoE4 community in terms of the amyloid. And what happens with ApoE4 is the the impaired ability to to export cholesterol out of membranes ends up with an increased cholesterol um, composition in the membranes, and that increased cholesterol causes those membranes to be a little more stiffer. Mm -hmm. And when they're a little more stiff, the enzymes that process amyloid, which is the amyloid precursor protein, it shifts at equilibrium to the bad protein, which is the beta secretase, from the good protein, which is alpha secretase. Alpha, right. And so when you shift to more beta, then you get amyloid formation. And so, so it's since ApoE4 carriers have a predisposition to reduce cholesterol clearance, then they have a predisposition to increase amyloid. And so when you look at the cascade of, of risk in the E4 community, 
E4 leads to cholesterol, leads to amyloid. So if I measure the amyloid levels in the human brain, I don't need to know your E4 content. I don't need to know your E4 levels. It's irrelevant at this point in time. So E4 predicts amyloid, which then the amyloid itself is a biomarker of impaired membrane structure, which leads to impaired neurological function. So, so, so of the three things, talking long, is that the plasmalogens are critical for membranes and membrane fluidity and membrane structure and function. That's one. The second one is, and the reason why the cognition association showed up so fast as the most powerful association is that the plasmalogens are also involved in a very specific membrane function, which is the vesicular release of neurotransmitters. So the neurons of our body, because we're, you know, we're not an electric circuit board, we're a biochemical circuit board. So in order for signals to pass and communication to occur in the human body, this communication is all biochemical. You know, little chemical molecules go from the, the one neuron to another neuron. And how that happens is they have to get released into the synaptic cleft and to the next. That the release of neurotransmitters is actually dependent upon plasmalogen composition. Plasmalogens are required for neurotransmitters to be released. And that's the, the, the second most functional aspect. And the third one, which actually gets a lot of, you know, when you Google um, plasmalogens and the historical aspects of plasmalogens, is that they're very potent antioxidants and free radical scavengers. And they're by far... By orders of magnitude, they've scavenged more free radicals and oxidative stress than all other antioxidants in the body combined by far. Um, it's your body's go-to antioxidant. And we make a lot of it. Like, and that's the other thing with plasmalogens, is they're not talking about some trace little molecule that's some real esoteric peptide or protein. No, we're talking about something that makes up like 20% of your brain, high concentrations in your heart, your lungs, your kidney, your retina. So your body actually has the ability to make a lot of these plasmalogens. And not only do we make a lot normally, we use a lot. It's your, and it's designed, the, the, the vinyl ether bond, the special, special feature of the plasmalogen is designed to protect other molecules. And you normally have the ability to make a lot of them. And what we found is that over time with other diseases, at some point, you can get your ability to manufacture these plasmalogens is less than your daily need of them. And if that, and once that, that, that balance becomes um, out of balance, mm -hmm. then your plasmalogen levels start to deplete. Like you start basically, they start bleeding out of your brain essentially. And then that, that rate of, of decline is dependent upon the delta, how, how are, are you 5% less than you need or you need 10% or you, or if you're only making 50% of what you need, then the, the rate of the plasmalogen depletion, that rate is dependent upon the, the relative difference between how much you make versus how much you use. And so that's, that's where it's. Right. So, anyways. so yeah, well, before we dive into strategies to raise plasmalogen levels, which is our, our ultimate goal. Um, tell the listeners about what you found with APOE genotype. 
So you found APOE2 carriers, for instance, have the highest, they tend to have the highest levels of plasmalogens, whereas APOE4 carriers, on on average, tend to have the lowest levels. Actually, Uh there actually is no, that's actually really good you brought it up, because I'll I'll correct that, because there is no association between genotype, APOE genotype, and your plasmalogen levels. What the association is, is that um, the risk of dementia, according to your APOE genotype, is dependent upon your plasmalgin level. So what that means is if you're an E2 carrier, you can have low plasmalogens and not right. dementia. But so if I, if I look at humans and I... I if I correlate their genotype to their plasmalogen levels, there's no correlation. Okay, there's there's no relationship between plasmalogen levels and APOE genotype, okay. which is very hopeful. But you do see trends, right? No, what we see is okay. What we what's important is that when you want to overcome the risk associated with E4 genotype, right? That's what we're talking about here. So an E4 carrier. With high plasmalogens, okay, does not have increased risk of dementia. Okay, so the high plasmalogens protect the E4 carrier from cognitive impairment. We now, love that. <laughs> okay, so, and the level of plasmalogens required for that protection, that the level required is dependent upon your genotype. So if you ah. are. If you're an E3 carrier, say you, if you're an E3 carrier, you need, these are not, don't quote me the exact numbers, right. but numbers. If you're an E3 carrier, say you need 50% of, you need to be at the 50th percentile to be protected. And if you're an E4 carrier, you need to be at the 80th percent percentile. If you're an E2 carrier, you could be at the 30th percentile and be okay. Uh, and so, okay, okay. So the issue really is, is how much plasmalogens do you need is dependent upon your genotype. So, Got it. so okay. E4 carrier needs higher plasmalogens than E2 carrier. And an APOE4 homozygote may need even higher levels. Exactly. Okay. So, of course, your metabol- metabolomic testing can show us what our plasmalogen levels are. But what about other surrogate biomarkers for people right. that don't have access to your testing? So the things that we can do, so the plasmalogens are manufactured in your peroxisomes of the body. And so we can have, and we know what correlates with good plasmalogens. So high, if you have high HDL levels and you have low triglyceride levels, that's usually an indicator that you probably have good plasmalogen levels. And the reason for that is that the plasmalogens are transported on HDL particles in the body. And we find that there's a correlation. People, we've, we've done this work in humans where the people with high plasmalogens will have high HDL. And I tell people, don't focus on your LDL unless you have really, really cholesterol transport issues like you have really, really high cholesterol. I typically ignore LDL. 
mm-hmm. uh, only focus on HDL because people with good plasma peroxisomal function will have higher levels of both LDL and HDL. Right. Okay. And so as we get older, cholesterol is actually made from molecules in the peroxisome. So the peroxisomal beta oxidation creates acetyl-CoA and then acetyl-CoA is used for cholesterol production in the human body. So people that have good functioning peroxisomes will actually have naturally higher levels of cholesterol. But they usually have naturally high levels of the good cholesterol, which is HDL. And then peroxisomes are also, they consume your triglycerides. So like the PPAR agonist or, you know, uh, fibrates, these molecules act by stimulating peroxisomal function and they're, they're used to decrease cholesterol, uh, triglyceride levels. Same thing with essential fatty acids. So the free DHA and EPA, they act as peroxisome stimulators. And when they're consumed, one of the, one of the outcomes is reduced triglyceride levels. And so typically when we want, when someone has high triglyceride levels, it's usually an impairment in peroxisomal function. Okay. Um, or we try to improve peroxisome function. So you can infer if you can, if you can get your fasting triglyceride levels low naturally, not by drug infections, because you want it, because if, if you, that's the other fallacy that we have. Um, artificial changes in certain biomarkers don't, sometimes they just, they, they kind of trick the biomarker test without actually changing the underlying function. So, but if you, if you have a lifestyle, diet and lifestyle um, behavioral activity that results in naturally low triglycerides and naturally higher levels of HDL, we can pretty well infer from that that you're gonna be optimizing your plasma allergen levels. And the other, other part you can do is have antioxidants in your body, because you, you wanna do two things. You wanna stimulate production, so right. resist, resistance training, you can get you can build more plasma allergens occur from resistance training, not excessive. And then also That's adding in. Interesting. Ant- so resistance as opposed to aerobic? Or oh, both? absolutely. Yeah. Oh, really? Especially in the elderly. Um, again, this is, this is, there's a balancing act here. There's right. not a, so we, we're actually seeing anecdotal evidence in super athletes where they actually have low levels of plasma allergens. So you can't overdo it. Sure. Right? So, you, so you can overdo your exercise routine such that, that the positive effects of the exercise in stimulating is offset by the negative effects of exercise. Because ne- exercise does create oxidative stress and demanding. You're breaking your muscles down, right? And you're breaking them down and you're building them back up again. And what you want to do is you want to have a balanced exercise routine, especially in the elderly, that is stimulating the muscle growth and stimulating the biochemistry of your muscles but not overdoing it such that the, the cure becomes the disease, right? Which right. We, we can have overdoing of that. And the other part is putting, you know, a low inflammatory diet, which will reduce your body's consumption of plasmalogens. So in the natural world, what you want to do is you want to increase plasmalogen manufacturing by stimulating peroxisomal function. And you want to decrease the consumption of plasmalogens by um, using other having make sure your body has other anti-inflammatory antioxidant capacity that can actually carry some of the weight that the plasmalogens normally do. 
So can you tell me what a diet would look like that would promote healthy plasmalogen levels? Yeah, so so before I was able uh-huh. to manufacture and design a supplement, I had my dad on it. I right. don't know if he's listening to this eventually, but um, so he actually has plasmalogens in the 85th to 90th percentile. And so, and he's in his 80s now. So he is has improved. He's in, he's in higher functionality now than he was several years ago, 20 years ago. Um, and so the routine that I had him on was moderate resistance training, you know, three mm-hmm. or four times a week. He has a little weight room in his, in his basement. And then um, stimulate peroxisomal function with, with an omega-3 supplement, like a mm-hmm. DHA, mm-hmm. mostly DHA. And then try to reduce oxidative stress and demand through just natural supplements like coenzyme Q10, which is healthy for your mitochondria, and acetylcysteine, which um, helps dealing with inflammatory issues, and acetylcarnitine, those type of little basic things. Not, not, nothing in an overdosing situation. These supplements are used not for direct pharmaceutical therapeutic effect, but just to make sure you have enough of it around when you need it. And those levels came up and his function improved. Um, and then that's, you know, but we ultimately, there's a limit to what you can do naturally. And since our epidemiology studies, within our studies in humans, the, we're limited to the natural variability in humans. We're limited to, you know, how many people have really high plasmalogens? 5%, 10%, right? But we don't, can't get beyond that because we're just dealing with a natural distribution. And we have people with very, very low levels, okay, and that's where the mortality and, and that happens. happens. Mm-hmm. So now that we have the ability to specifically target these certain systems um, and bring everybody up to protective levels, um, we don't really know what the true optimal level is. We do know that you can't really overdose on plasmalogens because it turns into food, um, you know, in a, in a normal way. But so I want to talk about your supplement, but before we do, yeah. is was there a specific diet that you had your dad on, or that you yourself use? Um, well, just kind of making sure you have your basic ingredients. He, we're we're farm boys, so we have a regular meat and potatoes type diet, um, eggs and um, and meat, and um, and then kind of try to keep the 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 processed carbohydrates down to a minimal. So it's kind of your mini paleo kind of concept where it's meat and vegetables and just a a balanced diet. Well, the eggs and the meat are great sources of choline, which is very important. That's important. And people are, it's, it's, that's one of the main deficiencies that we find in people that they don't know they have. And even what we're finding too, is that even people that have, their diet looks like they have enough choline in them. They're still choline deficient, which we don't like. They're consuming them. They're, so there is so the choline supplementation or ethanolamine supplementation. Okay, mm-hmm. so both are are balanced. Um, we need both of those in our diet. Actually, ethanolamine is the um, molecule that you can't actually get. You make you have to get it in your diet. Choline we can actually make from starting material. But the energy required to make choline is quite high. And so, anyways, so, yeah, choline is another, uh, 
we're identifying certain nutrient deficiencies that you don't they wouldn't they wouldn't fall into the category of you know vitamin c and scurvy or vitamin d and rickets like the, the kind of severe deficiencies that actually cause an you know an observable outcome i think we're learning now in longevity space and that's what's as i've been doing this the my thinking has kind of moved from um, disease focus to opti optimize function focus. And that's really been a, a change over a few years because it doesn't come obvious. Like the first thing you want to do is we're, we're kind of, we're, we're pre-programmed to look at the bad and try to fix the bad. Like, you know, something bad happened to me and I want to fix it. And so our whole way of thinking of health is typically predicated on disease first we think of everything as a disease. Even the EPO four, we think of it as a disease. Like it's 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 a it's a deficit, and it really has nothing to do with it. And so, moving away from this disease focus, and and stop giving diseases so much power over your your mind, and and so that's kind of where things have kind of changed over time. That's what your testing allows us to do. Yeah. It allows us to intervene in that prodromal period, right? Yeah. Where we move from youth and health towards old age and what typically was thought of as disease, but we're trying to change that paradigm. Yeah. Um, tell us about the supplement that you created. Yeah, so plasmalogens, obviously, so we saw this trend right and this very powerful correlation with neurological disease really powerful with, with alzheimer's disease and cognition um and then the, obviously the next step is well how do we get more of them is there a food supply of these things why you know how do we, we improve these things and that's when it got more and more interesting because your plasmalogens are phospholipid <clears throat> and the most important step is the very last step which creates this bond a special bond called the vinyl ether bond, which is what gives it its activity in neurons and as an antioxidant. And it's the very last step that the body does to make the plasmalogen. And like I said, we have lots of them. So in theory, we should be able to eat them, right? Like if I have lots of plasmalogens, you know, the animal food products should have lots of plasmalogens. So wh why am I deficient in plasmalogens? Wh wh why can't I eat an animal and get all the plasmalogens I need. Yeah, right? there's actually clinicians who recommend that. They recommend right. that APOE4 carriers eat a lot of shellfish because they're mm -hmm. high in plasmalogens. Yeah. Does that does that work? Well, no, it doesn't. And <laughs> okay. it, well, it does to a certain degree. Okay, okay. Uh, every, like right. you have to be careful with right. huge absolute statements. But the reality is that the that vinyl ether bond has a very special quality. It gives it its very potent antioxidant and free radical scavenging capabilities. But the downside is it's extremely acid labile, which means when it experiences acid, it gets, it gets broken down into an aldehyde, which is what happens in the body. But if you consume high levels of plasmalogens in your diet, you're actually generating these, these toxic aldehydes in your stomach. Because sure. that's, because the, the, your stomach acids, Will, will convert that vinyl ether bond, which is why we can't absorb it in the food supply. A certain amount will get through. Like, you know, if you eat enough of anything, it's going to get through the system, right? And so if you're having shellfish, and some of the plasmalogens will have not the vinyl ether bond, but they'll have the 
the ether bond and that that those plasmalgias do make it through your food supply okay that's not the majority of them so from a chemistry perspective we had to design a molecule that could survive the gut and what we did is we designed a molecule that was one step up in the human biochemistry so it's a bioidentical it's, it's an actual it's an actual human metabolite that we make that has instead of the vinyl ether bond has the regular ether bond so that it's stable in the gut more importantly the the not all plasmalogens are the same we want the omega-3 plasmalogens in your body they're, they're the ones that have the high cholesterol lowering effect and they have the strong cognition effect so we want to get that dha plasmalogen in the body and that's the second trick is that it's your phospholipid dha that's important to your human body but you can't get phospholipid dha from a diet excuse me for so interrupting as you know, Dr. Rhonda Patrick has a theory that DHA in phospholipid form is preferential for APOE4 carriers in terms of getting DHA to the brain. I think she uses okay. salmon roe caviar as her preferred source. So let me explain. So again, without right. falling into the trap, absolute statements because nothing in the human body is completely absolute the when you eat a food product because okay, we're that's we're, we're designed to eat animals and plants and foods and of course we convert that into things that our body can use so our digestive tract has a number of enzymes and processes that it uses to ensure that just the critical components of these food products enter our, our system so one thing is fats, like triglycerides. So when you get triglyceride levels, you know, measured from the doctor, mm -hmm. it's exactly the same as triglyceride in your food supply. So your salad oil is a triglyceride. Okay? Mm -hmm. That's oil. It's fat. And so fats are triglycerides, which means they have a glycerol backbone with three fatty acids. But triglycerides don't get absorbed into your body. Okay, what happens is that your stomach and your intestines digest it using what's called lipases. Mm -hmm. And they first take off one fatty acid, which is at the, the SN1 position. Then they take off the second fatty acid, which is the SN2 position. And then what's called a monoacylglyceride is what gets absorbed into the bloodstream. And that gets circulated. And then your liver puts the fatty acids back on to the triglyceride to send it to your adipose tissues. And it'll... So there's a disconnect, right? So the triglycerides in your, like the fatty acids, like the omega-3 DHAs in your, if you take a, fish, a classic fish oil supplement, it's going to have DHA on a triglyceride backbone. But that triglyceride doesn't go into your body, the monoacylglycerol. And then the free fatty acids have to, the, the regular pool of the human body is used. So obviously triglycerides, you will over time increase your DHA levels. That's, that's, that's normal. So phospholipids are metabolized this different way. Okay. When you eat phospholipids from a food supply, like an animal source, um, the phospholipase actually cleaves off the SN2 position, which is the DHA, which is where the fatty acid that you want is. And so you actually get, you absorb what's called a lysophospholipid. 
and that lysophospholipid is doesn't contain the DHA. Your human, your 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 liver has to put that DHA back on. So you're not really getting the the DHA phospholipid from the food supply unless you have a different kind of absorption and there's some cooler technologies that are being developed for that. So anyway, so the point of the matter is, is that we want to get the DHA omega-3 on the plasmalogen phospholipid in the human blood supply, as well as your other phospholipids. So we designed a molecule specifically to do exactly that. So it's metabolically engineered based upon human biochemistry to do exactly that. So we, the molecule that we designed for a supplement is an alkyl glycerol. So it's like a, it's like a triglyceride, except that it has the plasmalogen bond at the SN1 position, which is stable in your gut. Your stomach does not digest that. That's what the big difference is. And the second big okay. difference really is, is that we put the DHA molecule at the SN2 position. So unlike a triglyceride, a triglyceride, you get a monoacylglycerol being absorbed because in a triglyceride, the SN1 and SN3 positions are exactly the same. They, they look, right. you can't tell the difference. But in a plasmalogen glyceride, which we have, the SN1 position has the ether bond. So, which means is that instead of a monoacylglycerol that gets absorbed in the blood supply, we actually get the DHA at the SN2 position absorbed. And so that gets directly converted into a phospholipid and that DHA is conserved through the biochemistry of the body. And that's why we can selectively elevate um, a particular plasmalogen species. And so have you tested in humans who take your supplement if their plasmalogen levels are indeed increasing? Yes. Okay. So we've done that. So we, we can double plasmalogen levels in 24 hours. Wow. Yeah. And so six of us took um, a large dose because, you know, you know, fun, fundamentally, fundamentally, I did this for myself, right? Like, I, like, like, so we're, I'm obviously the first. I'm I'm the end of one first user for this stuff, and so yeah. So we have measured several people. Actually, six of us did a formal trial of ourselves, and we doubled our plasmalgen levels of the actual target, the DHA. So the the plasmalgen supplement is almost 100%. It's a high concentration of your omega threes. DHA and a little bit of EPA in it, and that will convert directly into the DHA plasmalogen. And the DHA plasmalogen, which is our target, doubled in 24 hours. How much did you have to uh, take? Well, we took a little bit higher dose. It's um, we <laughs> took um, 100 milligrams per kilogram, which would be about 10 mils, like about half. So we we sell the bottle in a 30 mil right. bottle, which is for a month supply, approximately one third of a bottle. Ooh, you're um, a brave man. <laughs> it's it's just oil. It's not a big deal. Right. No, um, I say that because I have tasted it. <laughs> ah, well, I have great it's news not, for you. It's not horrible. It's not Oh, horrible. it's horrible. No, no, you can say it. You can say it out loud. It's horrible. Well, um, I actually think the taste is improving a little bit. Is that my imagination? Well, it's not your imagination. We okay, are the, from the first batch to my second batch. I see a yeah. definite improvement. Yeah, and yeah. well, you'll the next batch you'll you'll love. Um, the we just went to a hundred percent vegan supply, so it'll be a hundred percent vegan. It should have virtually. So, problem is getting DHA, the omega three, 
um, getting sourcing that is difficult because there's really no chem there's no efficient way to chemically make it. So we do rely on food sources, and a classic source is from fish products. Sure. So our our initial and we have to take fish products and we need a because it comes in triglyceride form. So we we use fish products to get the DHA or we did when we did all the original design. So now we've been able to source a really high purity algae source and. Um, oh. And so now we use that for our, so, so we'll be a hundred percent vegan. It should be, we'll know for, it's, it's going through final QA right now. And, um, but the next round of product should be a hundred percent vegan. It should have zero fish taste or smell whatsoever. And have really interesting. High okay. But it's still going to do the same thing. Same oh, yeah. concentration. Yes. Oh, that is fascinating. It'll be actually a bit, higher DHA concentration. Okay. I feel badly. I've taken up a lot of your time. I, I am going to ask you to come back and join us another time um, so For that sure. we can talk even more. Um, we also mentioned at the top of the hour that we have been working together to create an opportunity for our members to use your metabolomic testing. Um, and we hope we will make an announcement in the very near future about that. And there will be incentivized pricing and package deals for our APRO E4 carriers who want to participate. And yeah. in addition, we're creating a online software platform. Well, we're not creating the platform. We're using our existing platform so we can capture other data points. But basically, we want to help members of our community do self-directed research. Yeah. Um, and it occurs to me that using your supplement would be an excellent um, example of that. You could get baseline metabolomic testing, use your uh, supplement for a couple of months, and then repeat the testing. Absolutely. And that's we're, we're a huge supporter of the N of One individualized right. work. And we do believe ultimately human health is going to benefit from large numbers of average users sharing their experiences and systematically improving their biochemistry. And most people, you can't, you can't fix what you don't know. Right. And that's the fundamental thing. And you need to, you need to have, you need to know what to fix and before you get sick. And so that's our whole, the whole concept of us is let's measure this biochemical system of ours. Look at the equilibriums optimize them not and let's not wait for a disease to occur like we know what it should look like we know what a good working system looks like and um let's do it and then don't worry about it and then as and you, and you learn you learn as you go forward right um and for listeners who want to jump the gun and who want to get the metabolomic testing right away and get your supplement right away, in our show notes, we will list your website where they can do that. But I do ask if you're an APO E4 carrier, when you place your order, please make a note that you want to join a group project once it is uh, launched. And we do think that we're relatively close to a launching. I think this global pandemic has certainly slowed us down a little bit we want people to be safe um you know yeah and you know we can follow up with some more details regarding the, sure. the logistics of that absolutely i know i've kind of taken up a lot of time 
ran long on some of these no, answers. No, I actually um, could talk to you for another hour, and I will <laughs> ask you at some point if you would yeah. join us because I have the feeling that our listeners are going to be really interested. In yeah, it's. it's I think once you start going through this, um, it starts becoming common sense. And I think what I really want to do more than anything is to demystify biochemistry for people. People should feel that they have the power to do this. It's actually not that hard. And if you get the biofeedback, if you can actually do a change, measure, see that it happens, something happens inside, then also have a, a visceral feeling on the outside of your body that you actually feel better. And I can tell you from, I, I do a, a large number of, of individual report analysis with, with customers. And the feeling of empowerment that an individual gets, they get self-validated. It's hard work changing your diet. Changing behavior is hard work and it takes commitment and you need positive feedback to keep doing it. Like it's hard to, it's hard just to intellectually say, well, this is good for me. I, you know, my doctor says this and this says this. But then if you don't feel better, if you don't actually get some sort of positive feedback, it's hard to maintain that. And what we need to be able to do is, because we're a social animal and we're, you know, we have to be able to maintain positive behavior for extended periods of time. And that doesn't happen by chance. That happens through community and it happens through feedback and it happens to, through reinforcement of what's happening. And so that's really what I want to try to engage individuals on and say, you know what, this isn't a black box. You actually have the power to control a lot of these variables and you can get the biochemical feedback early on and allow yourself to maintain a program for, well, the biochemistry is changing. And then you'll, because sometimes the, the, the physical symptomatic observation sometimes lags behind your biochemical change. So sometimes you got to change your biochemistry first, but you may not feel the, the, the symptomatic effect for a little bit longer. So you need to have some sort of motivation to maintain and continue a program while it's still, you know, getting your body back on, on track. I, I think that's the, yeah. that's the thing. I completely agree. I think your testing would provide that feedback that people need. But I do have to say that I've been part of a small group who got to try your supplement. And I was really surprised at the number of people that felt an almost immediate difference. Yeah, we're so, seeing that a lot. Yeah. So and really, I mean, in, that's and really in cognition. Yeah. Like we're, 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 uh, we're seeing a, it's anecdotal, of course. We haven't run full trial. We've got two trials. Right. We've got trials going on around the world right now. Um, but people with cognitive impairment, their caregivers, um, were virtually 100% of them are saying they're seeing improvement in engagement, in awareness, in um, interaction, cognition. So we're, 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 we're seeing some pretty, pretty amazing, you know, individual observations. That kind of N of one, um, feedback is really helpful. I mean, so you have a really good idea of what you're going to see when you eventually analyze your data from the clinical yeah. trials. Well, and what's so important, well, it, it's, it's, we have been programmed not to expect real improvement in our lives. Okay. Like we, the whole Alzheimer's is a really good example. 
the idea of improving function is really way out there. Like as a scientist, you hardly even, you'll never say that out loud because you, our whole purpose of Alzheimer's and dementia is to reduce the rate of decline. No one really even talks about improving function and maintaining an improved function. Like say that out loud, you're crazy. You're, 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 you're out, shunned by the, you're off the reservation right? in terms yeah. of like you're, you're taught, you know, um, and I apologize for that. That's a whole country saying um, the, but you're just, you're just not in the norm. You're not part mm -hmm. of the, the normal group mm -hmm. of thinking. And the, um, and what we're seeing is improve function and we want to improve some function and maintain it indefinitely. And that's where, you know, we can talk about the difference between longevity science and mortality science at some later date. But that's really the, it's an entirely different change of mindset. It's saying, let's not take this defeatist attitude regarding human health. And I think we've been, we've been really programmed into a defeatist attitude. Um, and, and, and that's, that's, there's a mental reprogram that, we, that needs to happen. Absolutely. And that's what our community is certainly trying to uh, do. And we see anecdotal and of one evidence all the time that as people change their lifestyle and their diet and they begin taking some targeted supplements, they feel better. They feel cognitively sharper. It's not a clinical trial, but, you know, we see it in hundreds and hundreds of our members. So we're completely with you. We think that cognition is much more fluid than the research community would lead us to believe that you go from normal cognition to subjective cognitive impairment to mild cognitive impairment onto Alzheimer's, and it's a straight arrow. I mean, we see a lot of fluidity and it's based very much upon lifestyle factors, things that we have control over. And your testing will allow us to measure, you know, yeah, exactly. what, we're, what we're seeing. So thank you so much. And we You're will very, very ask welcome. you to join us again. Okay, and thanks a lot, Julie. Be safe. Okay. I will, you too. All right, Cheers. take care. Bye-bye. The APOE4.info community of citizen scientists is on a mission to learn what strategies move us toward vibrant health and away from the pathologies associated with our high-risk gene. If you're another carrier or suspect you might be based upon family history, or even if you just want to learn how to protect your brain and heart, be sure to check us out on the web at APOE4.info.